0: Yeah, thanks, David and Jason and the worship team. Man, what an exciting morning it is! Good to see you all here this morning. I hope you're doing well. Really do. If you're a visitor with us, and I haven't had a chance to introduce myself, my name is Jason. Um, I have the honor and privilege of pastoring here at the church, I'm leading under the lordship of Jesus with five other men. David is one of those men as well. Five other elders, and so. Um truly wanted to extend a, a warm welcome to you, let you know we appreciate you showing up today, and hopefully the Lord will work in your life in a tremendous way. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 uh, this morning, so if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your phone or your tablet or your gadget, or if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, we put black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. They're hard to see, but they're under there. If you want one, uh, feel free to grab them. They're there for you, uh, probably under the seat where you're seating or seated. Or seated. Sitted, seated, or the one right next to you. So feel free to grab one of those. Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 2. So uh, we are continuing our Church United uh, series. This is the second sermon in the series. And, uh, and so this morning we're going to be talking about what it means together in corporate worship. Our vision as a church um, is based on our mission um, that Jesus gave us. It's non-negotiable, um, and he told us as a church Um, through Matthew 28 through Acts 1 to go and make disciples of the nations to lead people into a vibrant life-changing relationship with Jesus and so as we do that um, we have a vision and a strategy that we work within to get there and so the first uh, component of our vision is gathering and worship. And so today what we're going to talk about is the significance of what we do here on Sunday mornings and what that has to do with the rest of our lives. What we do on Monday at our job, what we, uh, what we do in the Philippines in June, what we do in Flint, Michigan at spring break, what we do at the Super Bowl party for the homeless in February. Is that the Super Bowl? Uh, the Christmas store in December. Everything else that we do in life, what this morning has to do with that. And uh, my prayer um, is twofold, really. For those of you who maybe don't have a church background or you're not a Christian, uh, don't really know a lot about church, but you know that we call this time worship, I hope that in some way you'll, 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 you'll gain some bearings this morning, a definition on what we mean by the word worship, and, uh, and maybe even the idea itself would be elevated in significance in your mind and heart as you leave out today. And For those of you who are familiar with church, uh, you've been going to church for a long time, um, you probably, like me, um, easily become complacent to what this is and what it means for us. And, and, and I'm prone to take this for granted because I'm prone to take you for granted. And I'm prone to, even though in my mind I know this is supposed to be important, in my heart sometimes I approach corporate worship flippantly. And so my second prayer for us is that, um, for all of us, that uh, the significance of corporate worship would be elevated in our minds and hearts this morning, that we would regain Um, the majesty of being in God's presence together and what that means. And so, um, before we get started in Acts 2, just a couple of things to give us some bearings. So, there is a distinction between personal worship and corporate worship, okay? Uh, Personal worship can take place um, anytime Uh, I'm by myself. Um, it, It happens oftentimes when I get alone by myself and there's no music playing and I'm not singing and I simply open God's word and I read in faith As the Holy Spirit of God works within me to illuminate my eyes to see truth, um, beautiful moments of personal worship take place there. Uh, Sometimes when I'm by myself and a song that we sing in here or a song that I'm writing that's rooted in biblical truth will well up in my spirit and heart and I'll sing um, even when I'm by myself. It's kind of weird. I know. And uh, and, and to top it off, I'm not that great of a singer. So any given day, you could walk into this building if nobody else is here and hear somebody singing down the hallway, and you might be overhearing me in personal worship, okay? Uh, Personal worship can happen in a lot of different ways when I'm alone with Jesus. It's an important part of my relationship and journey, and it's an important part of yours as well. However, there is something called corporate worship. It's what we do when we're together that is equally important and significant to our walk with the Lord and our relationship with one another. And God has called us to both. And so we're in a, a multimedia culture. Church is at the tip of our fingers, whether I'm going to um, go on the Internet and watch a live stream of a, of a worship service, or I'm going to watch on TV something that's live or something that happened last week and it's a replay, or I'm going to listen to something on the radio, I have access to all different types of experiences and and access to quote-unquote worship services. Here's the problem. In order for it to be a corporate worship experience, we have to be at the same place at the same time with the same purpose. And so while you can watch it on TV and you can watch a corporate worship service taking place, if you're there by yourself, you're not part of that. I love what Jason Martin uh, mentioned earlier as we went into singing. He, sa- he reminded us of a promise from Jesus in Matthew 18, 20 where Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered, same time, same place. It's important. You can't just show up at the same building at different times. You need to be at the same place, whether it's on the lawn or it's at your house or in this building or anywhere. You have to gather together at the same place where two or three are gathered in my name There I am among them. So we're just saying, even though we know you're here, Jesus, come. What are we saying? We believe this promise is true. That where your people gather at the same time, at the same place, with the same purpose of gathering in his name, he is in our midst. And our hearts are postured for corporate worship. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to walk through Acts 2, 41-47. We're going to look at two different sections of this. The first couple of verses here lay out elements of corporate worship. I'm not putting them out as the only elements. It's not an exhaustive list. But this is a beautiful example of what should be present in our corporate worship experience. And then in verse 43, there's a shift to the things that we can be expecting God to do. The fruit of or the miraculous work of God when we get together in corporate worship. So that's going to be our trek today uh, through Acts 2, starting in verse 41. So here's what's happened in Acts 2 to give you some background. So at the end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Jesus resurrects, okay, and then he ascends back to the Father. He gives a commission to go start the church. That's the mission. ascends back to the Father. Acts 1 begins by recapturing that scene of him ascending. So he's there in Acts 1 with uh, the disciples, and he reminds them of the mission to go, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. He reminds them of the promise of the Holy Spirit that will come upon them and empower them, and then he ascends, Acts 1-8, 9, maybe even to 10. And then what happens in Acts 2 so this crew that was just there watching this take place, reminded of their mission, reminded to be watching for the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and just falls on the disciples and those who were there in such a way that the room shudders. Like, it's a big deal. It kind of it freaks them out at first. For the people who are outside on the streets, it's such a commotion taking place when God's Spirit falls that some, they think that there's a party going on. And they're floating kegs in there. And they're like, man, these guys must be toasted. Like, there is some weird stuff going off in that room. And it was the Holy Spirit. Like, thats I'm not making that up. Go to Acts 2. Like, they thought they were drunk. And so the Holy Spirit empowers them. And then all of a sudden, the disciples, something clicks. Oh, this is what he was talking about. We've got a mission to make disciples. And so in Acts 2, after the Holy Spirit falls, Peter steps up and begins to preach. It's a beautiful sermon. He begins by saying, hey, guys, I know that some of you think that you know, we're off our rocker here, but this is what Jesus promised would happen. And then he rolls right into some beautiful biblical text, rolls into Joel and some beautiful quotes from the Psalms, from some things that David said, all of which to explain to everybody who's listening that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, that he's come to earth, he has died and been buried and resurrected from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. A beautiful example of how to preach and teach God's word. Right there in Acts 2. So all that takes place, the people who hear it are cut to the heart, and they say, now what do we do? And so Peter says, repent and be baptized. We're going to pick this up in verse 41, Acts two forty-one. so essentially outside of those disciples and those intimate followers of Jesus, maybe about 120 folks, this is really the first corporate church experience after the church has launched, at least it's the first one recorded, so starting in Acts 2, 41, the first phrase says this, so those who received his word, it's really important, Okay, received is the critical word here. Not just those who heard. Uh, It was a very busy time in Jerusalem at this point. Lots of people were out on the streets and coming through and hearing what was going on. Not everybody got it. But those who heard it and believed, that's received here. This idea that they didn't just hear it, but they heard it and they embraced it. So there's a select group of people who heard what Peter preached and they embraced it. They received it. They believed it. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's amazing. 3,000 souls. I mean, they weren't even really set up for this. They didn't have a portable baptistry they could bring in, right? Like 3,000 people, they just said, what do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 people came forward, and then he's like, oh, what do we do now? They're ready to be baptized. Let's figure this out. I'm sure it took a while Right, They came forward, they professed their, their faith in Christ, they were baptized, about 3,000, and then they devoted themselves to some things. Verse 42, and they, which I believe is not just the disciples and in the intimate group, but the 3,000, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now this isn't an exhaustive list of all the things that could be considered corporate worship. But this is a fantastic list of things that we should do together when we get together, when we gather in his name, to worship. So the first one I would, I would bring up is this, clearly biblical teaching, teaching the Bible. It's all over Peter's sermon. Stands up. He hasn't been to a preaching class. Hasn't been to hermeneutics, or he hasn't learned how to exegete a passage of Scripture. That's for all my... The seminary folks out there, right? I mean, he just, just does it. Stands up and says, here's what's true, points to the word and points to Jesus, and people respond or say. But clearly rooted in biblical teaching, whether it's the preaching from the front or it's taking place in a classroom for marriages or stewardship, or we've got classes going on right now in the other building, uh, spiritual foundations, that our teaching is rooted in, in biblical truth, and that should be part of our corporate worship experience. So we have the example of Peter preaching, and then it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? Well, they just gave us an example, right? So Luke is the one writing out Acts for us. He records Peter's sermon, and he says they were devoted to this kind of teaching. It was part of their corporate worship experience. They were devoted to the disciples' teaching. But not only that, we're going to see that they were also devoted to breaking of bread, and we also just saw baptism, two really important elements in corporate worship. Let's talk about the ordinances of baptism and communion and what they represent and why that must be part of our corporate worship experience. So communion. So for for me and for you, hopefully every time you partake in communion, um, it's a very personal experience. I hope that. I hope you, every time you take of the cup and you take of the broken bread, you personally reflect on what Jesus has done on your behalf, and that by faith, you're now part of this new covenant. Your sins have been atoned for by this cup. You've been brought into fellowship by the breaking of his body, and so for you, it should be very personal, but it should also be very corporate. It's one of the reasons often here when we take communion, we do it together, to say what? I have a right relationship with God, but through that, I have a right relationship with you. And we're we're making this this public confession together that our faith is, is based on the same Savior. And so I can have communion personally. I don't know anything from the word of God that would prohibit me from in my own home or in my own quiet time or in the middle of the wilderness somewhere enjoying communion, right? Remembering my personal salvation. But there's a reason why we do it corporately. And the early church did it often corporately. Paul's giving all kinds of instructions to the Corinthian church because they, were, they weren't doing it right. They were getting together, and before everybody would show up, they would just dig in. And then when other people would show up, there would be nothing left. And, and, and they'd get, they would even get drunk off drinking all the wine from communion. I don't think that's the point. And so Paul corrects them on that. But it should be part of our corporate experience to not just personally celebrate but to collectively celebrate. The blood of Jesus that was enough, not just for my my sins, but for our sins, right? He died for the sins of the world. And when I take communion with you, I'm reminded of the magnitude of our salvation. And so communion should be part of our worship experience. We take communion every first Sunday of the month here. And I'm not saying that's the best frequency. Some take it every Sunday. Some do once a quarter. That's just where we've landed on it. Um, Baptism. Baptism should be part of our corporate worship experience. In the same way, baptism is very personal. Those of you who've trusted Jesus and have been baptized, Like you remember so much about that experience. You remember people who were there, songs that were sung. Like You just remember that moment. It was, it's a landmark. It's a milestone in your spiritual journey that you sometimes lean against. You remember, that's right, I am his, and, and I've confessed this, and I'm a Christian. And So baptism is an important marker in your life personally but there's something that happens when you come up out of the water whether it's in a river a swimming pool or in a baptistry inside of a building right what happens worship erupts and we don't have to cue it you know there's no right there's no big red flashing letters up here that say clap and stand up and sing like it just wells up within us right And so there's something very corporate about the baptism experience that encourages and nurtures all of our souls when we see a person publicly professing their faith in Jesus and we're all reminded of our own faith and it's stirred up within us. And so baptism and communion were part of this first corporate worship experience. The next thing that he mentions is the fellowship or the koinonia is the Greek word. And we're going to spend some time here because the word means so much. Um, early on in my Christian journey, I would hear the word fellowship, and all I really heard was hanging out together. Okay? Now, it's important to be together, same time, same place, but it's more than that. right? It's, has, it has depth below that. It has heights above that. It extends broader than that. And so when we look at this word koinonia, just three working definitions, which are there in your sermon notes, um, gathering as a community, bringing together a common gift, and a joint participation in something. So we're gonna we're going we're gonna build those out now uh, in application to what it means to be a Christian koinonia. Okay, um, the, the word uh, comes from uh, like secular terminology at this point in time. It's not just a churchy word, um, but what does it mean for us to be a Christian community? Not just a community. Like many of you live in communities, right? And you have HOAs or gatherings, and so community for us is somewhat a generic idea. But what does it mean to be the community of Christ? I love Hebrews 10. When we finish this um, Church United series, we're going into a series. We're going to walk through Hebrews chapter by chapter. And I'm really excited about getting back to 10. Uh, So we're not going to get into it fully here, but we're going to look at a few verses from Hebrews 10 describing uh, the things that are supposed to be present in our corporate worship as we gather as the community of Christ. Verse 19 Begins here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, it's it's a reference back to what happened at the cross when the, the temple curtain, the veil was torn, opening up access into the presence of God. Before that, the presence of God was shut off from sinful people like me. And if I brought my sinfulness into the presence of a holy God, I could expect to die. We just sang about that, may the vision of you be the death of me. But in Christ, we now mean a good death, right? I need the old me to die. So that's what we mean now when we say that. But before the cross, I could expect right, to die in the holiness of God. And so what is being described here in Hebrews 10 is that now then access has been opened up for all of us to enter into the presence of a holy God. And Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, I'll be with them. He's talking about this access we now have into his presence. And so, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, verse 22, look at this. Let us draw near. With a, true, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us draw near. Um, I'm not going to expound too much. If you go back and listen to last week's sermon, I talk a lot about this from Ephesians 2, how we've been called to draw near. And we've been called to draw near to the presence of God individually. And when we do that, and collectively we look up and all of a sudden we're nearer to each other. And so here we're reminded that since Jesus has opened up God's presence to us, we're to draw near. But then he goes on in verse 23, Let us then, in our drawing near, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. This is important. When I show up here with you, um, we are to collectively hold fast to what we believe to be true, our confession of hope. So that, And some church experiences do it more formally in the form of like creeds. They recite creeds. They remind each other through these uh, memorized creeds, which you find some examples in the New Testament, okay, of what we believe. This is our confession. This is our hope. Sometimes it's more informally. We do it here every Sunday in the songs that we sing. You see, the songs that we sing aren't just to stir your hearts emotionally. We'll talk about that in a minute, how that takes place. But the songs that we sing are for us to remind one another of the confession that we believe to be true. And so I'll be honest with you. Sometimes the words that are coming out of my mouth when I'm singing songs, sometimes they're just, it's just lip service. And in that moment, I might be struggling to believe what I'm singing. And here's what happens when we gather as, as the body of Christ with a public confession Louder than the voices in my head, I hear your voice singing too. Even those of you who are out of key, I hear you. And you're reminding me of what is true. We're singing our confession together, that we've placed our hope and our trust in Jesus, and Jesus alone. And that's our public confession, whether you do it formally or informally, when we gather collectively, that's what marks us as the community of Christ, is that we have this corporate, public confession of what we believe to be true. And then he says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works. I believe this is where there's room for us to be stirred emotionally in worship. And we're gonna talk about the content of the songs that we sing in just a moment, but we don't just pick songs that move us emotionally, right? Otherwise, we're gonna get stuck, you know, with well, I won't even go there. with a bunch of songs we shouldn't be singing, right? There are a lot of songs that stir us emotionally but don't lead us to Christ. Now, but there is room for our hearts to be stirred, right? By the truth of God's word, there should be a stirring. There should be this elevation of affections and and this longing and desire. It's good to cry in worship because your heart is stirred. Whether you're being broken over the price that was paid for you and Jesus on the cross or you're just being overwhelmed by the goodness of how he has loved you well this past week, whatever it is, it's okay. It's good to be stirred, we get together, we sing our confession over one another, and our hearts are stirred up. But not only that, we are moved to good works. Part of our worship is our serving together. Now, is any serving worship? No. Right? So there, it has very little to do with the thing we're doing. I'll give you an example of something that doesn't seem like worship, but I believe was truly worship. Happened about four weeks ago. Um, a family member of mine who's incarcerated and needed to go over and pack up this person's belongings, and no, nobody likes, there's a few of you who like to move, and you're just weird. But packing and moving is something that you shouldn't enjoy doing. It's a big deal when God said to Abraham, pack up your stuff and go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm like, really? Like, pack on, like, that's a big deal, packing up all your stuff. So it's a bigger deal when the person you're packing and moving for, you don't know them, and they're not there to help, okay? So it was... It was a big deal. I was going over there to pack up this family member. Had to do it all in one day. Was not looking forward to it. And reluctantly, I shot out a text message to some guys in our life group and then a couple of other brothers just trying to solicit some help. And, and guess what? They showed up. A couple guys even took off work to come help me pack and move. Like, it's huge. And that may not seem like corporate worship to you, but we were gathered together. And, and there was such a heart. Matter of fact, we stopped at lunch to pray. Over the situation and the person who we were moving for. like I believe it was an expression of worship. Walking in good works and a sacrifice on behalf of somebody else because we all know and love Jesus. And so even things like that can be corporate worship. Just getting together to sing is not necessarily corporate worship. And so the author of Hebrews reminds us of these things, that we are to draw near together, hold fast to our confession, to stir one another up to love and to good works. But koinonia also means this, and I love this part of it. Never forget the first time I read this part of the definition, to bring together a common gift. I'm going to talk about how that plays out in three ways specifically, but it can come together in a lot of ways. So the common gift in that experience that I shared with you about moving, the common gift was we're gonna serve you. We're gonna take your things and be and, and pack them well, move them well, store them well, simply because Jesus loves us well, therefore we wanna love you well. Okay? There's this common gift that we all gave. Now think about that. What did it what was the gift? Let's just talk about money to begin with, right? I mean, gas money, had to buy lunch. Like, it wasn't, I mean, not that it was super expensive, but this person isn't even paying for the rent on their storage building. So there was this common coming together and a sacrifice financially. Um, when I think about how we do tithes and offerings here as a church, we have boxes at the back. We don't pass plates, and, and the reasons for that, okay? And I stand behind those reasons. But one of the things I miss because of that is this sense that we're, we're doing this together, Okay? And so, like, there, there should be something sacrificial about the way that, that I give to the mission that God's called us to as a church where I'm throwing in with you. And it, the amount doesn't matter. My throwing in could be a dollar and yours could be a million dollars, right? The, the, the amount has nothing to do with it. But that you and I are saying what? We're participating in this common gift here financially. I'm throwing in with you. We're going to see that play out just in this context that we're reading in Acts 2. It plays out again in Acts 4. And then you read the letters that Paul wrote, especially Corinthians. You're going to see it playing out time and time again where the people of God come together and they make these sacrificial financial gifts, not for their own um, glory or their own recognition, but to say what? We're on the mission. We've all been saved and we're throwing in together. There's somebody in need. Let's just throw in together. Let's take care of it. And so my, my hope and my prayer is regardless of what mode we use to take communion up here, whether we pass plates or do it in the boxes, that something in your heart is acknowledging that fact. This is not, it's personal, right? Personally acknowledging God has provided for my family. Personally acknowledging that God has called us by faith to trust him. Personally acknowledging God has called me to give financially and joy. So all these things are taking place when I give financially, but there also should be an element of I'm throwing in with you. You don't need to know when I give or how much I give. I don't need to know when or how much you give. But I know this: we're all thrown in together, and that's a that's a collective, common sacrificial gift that we bring together. That's part of what koinonia means. Um, not only that time. Uh, I just mentioned the example with moving. It cost some guys had to take vacation day to go do that. It cost them time. It cost you time to be here this morning. It did. And I, and, and, and I know sometimes we're excited and sometimes we're more reluctant with the list of things that need to be done and, oh my gosh, I've got to cut down these, my fence fell down last night, the tree branches in the yard, I've got, I'm already behind on my mowing, I'm behind on my yard work, I've got all these kinds of things going on and so we're tempted, right, to, to not value this time enough to make it a sacrifice. But you being here today is a sacrifice of your time and by showing up, we're all thrown in together. By saying this is important, you be here, I'll be here, I'll see you there. And we don't take attendance here on Sunday mornings; like we're not legalistic about it. But we need to understand every person here is equally equally significant to the corporate worship experience. And so we're tempted to only think that well, the only people that have to be there are Jason and the worship team, right? And we can have church; they'll never notice if I'm not missing. It's not how it works. Like if If I don't show up, trust me, somebody's going to get up here and bring a word. We've got five other elders, Brian Lamb. It's going to be so much better than I would have done anyway, right? I am an insignificant piece of this puzzle. And you are a significant piece. And so we bring our sacrifice of time together. Look at how Hebrews uh, 10, 25, I actually skipped over this earlier, but... Back to Hebrews 10, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I mean, this is the first century church, and they're already getting in the habit of not meeting together. They're already getting the habit of taking for granted the value and the purpose and the power of getting together as the church, and we are too, right? We're prone to think, I, it's not that important to me, not that, I'm not that important to the equation, Nobody even though if I'm not there. Like, I need you to be here. And and you need me to be here, not for the preaching, but you need me to be here. We need each other. We come together and bring that sacrifice of time together. I would just mention one other version of this as well, and that's with our spiritual giftings. First uh, Corinthians 12, Paul says, everybody, in the, everybody who's a Christian has been given a spiritual gift. And your spiritual gift is not for you personally, it's for the building up of the church. And that only works when we show up together. And you bring your gift, I bring my gift and together we make up the body of Christ and there's another common gift that we bring whether whether you're greeting or making coffee or teaching the kids or running tech putting in the you know cleaning out the things from the seats from last week putting in the new ones all of those are part of our corporate act of worship as we come together and bring the spiritual gifts God has given us together for the building up and the growth of his church it's a beautiful thing beautiful thing. The last thing is uh, from that idea of koinonia is joint participation. And again, we don't just mean any joint participation. Um, Just standing and singing isn't necessarily worship. It's not. We have to be jointly participating in something specific for it to be worship. So this is where we get to talk about singing. let me just run through some New Testament scriptures instructing us on the role of singing. So I'm not even gonna go to the Psalms where we're over and over again told to sing. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Make music with your heart. Like music and singing is supposed to be part of worship. Let's just go to the New Testament. Uh, Hebrews 13, starting in verse 15. Hebrews 13, 15. You can jot these down if you want to. Um, Through him, that's Jesus, let us continually, how often? Continually, right? Consistently, consistently. Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, in case we're not sure what that means, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledges his name or that acknowledges his name. So for it to truly be corporate worship, there's something specific about what we sing together. And it's it's not enough to excuse myself from the singing because I don't sing all that well or I'm not into music or I'm not musically inclined. Actually, I think that's what makes corporate worship beautiful. When those who don't sing well and those who do sing well, all from the same position of hearts, singing the same confession out loud, I think that's when we best begin to reflect what eternity is going to look like. When people from all ethnicities and backgrounds and different skill levels of singing, we come together with one voice to sing unto the Lord. Ephesians uh, 5.18 through 20, we're instructed... Do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. When we're filled with the Spirit, okay, corporate worship, His Spirit fills us. When we're filled with the Spirit, verse 19, addressing one another, this is how we're to talk to one another, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We'll get to the mind in just a minute, but with your heart, you need to mean what you're singing needs to come from inside, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We were just told that when we get together corporately, we're supposed to sing to one another. And so our singing then, when I'm standing over here or if I'm in the back of the room and I'm singing songs about Jesus and to Jesus, on one level it's very personal for me, and it should be. At sometimes I forget you're in the room. But that shouldn't be the norm always. Something very personal, very vertical about my worship. But there's also something very horizontal about my worship experience. When we bring together our voices and we sing with one voice unto the Lord. Verse, this is Colossians 3 16 through 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's really important. The word of Christ dwells within you richly, teaching you, or teaching and admonishing one another in. How do we teach and admonish one another? In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Think about that. One of the ways we teach and admonish one another is with the songs we sing. Now we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 14. And so all the uh, the theology buffs are probably going to kind of perk up. Ooh, we're going to go talk about tongues and prophecy now. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14. So here's how 1 Corinthians lays out. Chapter 12, Paul overviews all the spiritual gifts, how everybody's been given them for the building up of the body. Right? We roll into 13. 1 Corinthians 13. This is the love chapter where he says, tell you what, all the spiritual gifts in the world mean nothing if they're not rooted in love. You bring your spiritual gift without love, you're like a, like a gong going off or a, this crashing cymbal. And it's not going to help the body in any way. You're going to be irritating and obnoxious and loud if it's not rooted in love. And he says, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. When we get into 14, we start getting into this instruction on corporate worship, using our gifts. And Paul is primarily talking about the, the use of tongues, speaking in tongues versus speaking in prophecy in a corporate setting. And he talks about the balance and the dangers of doing one over the other. And so this is where we're going, 1 Corinthians 14. But he says something remarkable about our worship that I want us, our singing worship that I want us to get. So starting in verse 13, he says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what Paul is saying is that there's a, there's a time where I'm just really in the spirit. And, he's, and Paul says, I have the gift of tongues. And so I'm in the spirit and I'm praying in the spirit, but my mind is disengaged. So he's going to draw a distinction between having my spirit engaged, between that and having my spirit and my mind engaged. And he says, so when I'm speaking in tongues, oftentimes when I'm praying in tongues, my mind is disengaged. I'm going with the rhythm of the spirit. I'm just following his lead. And so verse 15, he says, what am I to do? And he brings up the problem. I will pray with my spirit. So the answer is not to quit praying in the spirit. There should be something about your prayers that is very communal with the presence of God. Not just memorized prayers, not just going through the motions. There should be something real, vital, alive about your prayer with the Lord. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit. But I Pray with my mind also. Again, he's talking corporately. I will, I will pray with my mind engaged, thinking about what I'm saying, thinking about what you're hearing me say. You know, in our, in our services on Sunday, we, we always start the teaching of God's word with an elder, a time of elder prayer. One of our elders comes up and leads us in prayer. Not just the spirit, but the mind engaged. So Paul says, the same way. I have my spirit engaged. I have my mind engaged. Look at what he says about singing in verse 15. I will sing praise with my spirit. That's incredibly important. I need to believe what I'm singing to the point where I feel it. It stirs my affections. I might even start crying. I'm so moved in the depths of who I am by what I am singing. But then look at what he says. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. Or I will sing with my mind also. Our minds are to be engaged in the songs that we sing. Um, and 16 is just very practical. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? So Paul says when you get together, you need to think about that. Not everybody in the room has been in church their whole lives. And it might be encouraging to you and edifying to you to pray in your spirit, speak tongues, you know, personally with the Lord. But Paul says, don't forget, you're, you're gathering with a big group of people. And there are people in the room who are brand new Christians, not Christians at all. And how are they going to agree with you? If they don't understand what it is that you're saying or singing or praying, not only should your heart be engaged corporately, but your mind should be as well. Pay attention to the songs that you sing I have a a hyper-criticalness about me that I don't necessarily love when it comes to the songs that we sing. Okay, I I used to lead worship here. When I go to other places primarily, I find myself leaning back and becoming the critic, and I I hate it about myself. But here's the criteria I use before I will engage in singing. If the words that I'm going to sing could be removed from this room and... I could take them with me on a date with my wife and sing them to her without changing any words, and it applies equally to her as it does to Jesus, I begin to have an issue with what I'm singing. Something about what I'm singing needs to draw out and distinguish whom I'm singing about and whom I'm singing to. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus is in every line, but somewhere in the song, there needs to be recognition, right? So that we couldn't just take the song out of this context and go put it in a different context, and me and my BFF are singing it to each other. And so I'm hypercritical of songs. I get that. However, I think that what Paul's saying is there should be a sense of being critical about the songs that you sing. You're asking people to sing with you. You're asking people to express their faith and make sure that you're engaging your mind. So for me, for those of you who go way back, I could sing of your love forever. You remember that song? Um, I, can't, I have led that song probably a hundred times from this stage. Some of you go all the way back to when I was leading worship, and that was in the repertoire. It would show up every once in a while. And there's something very affectionate about just being in the presence of the Lord and saying, I could sing of your love forever. Basically, what we're saying is, I don't really want to leave this moment. And that's good, and that's right. But if we're not careful, we'll begin inserting songs that could be about anybody, and then somebody out there is being drawn to sing about somebody else besides Jesus. And now what happened? Our corporate worship just broke down. So there should be something about the content that we're singing that engages our minds, right? So that we're singing what is true, our common confession. Um, the guys and, and gals who lead worship here, I want you to know, they go through the lyrics of our songs. Several worship leaders up here. Jason Lewis is the primary. I call him the gatekeeper. Yeah, you don't you don't let a song through that that isn't in line and rooted in biblical truth. Too many songs to choose from to be singing, right, watered-down stuff. Let's sing things that are true. And so our mind must be engaged engaged as well. When we think about singing as worship, I want you to think less of a means to an end and more of the end itself. This is what we are created to do, and this is what we will be doing eternally. Okay? It's less of a means and more of the end itself. Let me give you some examples from Revelation. So Revelation 4 verse 8, the angelic beings are there singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's beautiful. The angels are worshiping. Right after that, the 24 elders are there in that moment and they're worshiping. Revelation 4:11, they're singing, "Worthy are you Our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. What a beautiful song of truth. The elders are there in Revelation 4 singing this. Chapter 5, the saints gather. Revelation 5.12, here's what the saints are gathered and singing. 5.12 says, saying with a loud voice. So we're not quiet and subtle about this. Like It's biblical to get loud in here in your singing. It is. We're going to sing in just a minute. And I I hope your hearts are stirred to sing at the top of your lungs. Because this is what we'll be doing eternally. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. When we get together to sing for worship, there should be something inside of you stirring. Something that stirs inside of you and says, this is right. And here's what that is. This is what you were created to do. You and I were created to bear his image, to reflect his glory, to worship. Now, here's the thing. What we do in here is just a snapshot of what we'll be doing eternally. What we do in here is just this brief reminder for just a moment. This is what I was created to do. This is what I'm longing to be doing eternally. All right, I'm ready to re-engage in the mission. I'm ready to reengage in my work week and my family responsibilities. So we come in here for a moment to remind us of what eternity is going to look like. And that helps us deal with the frustration of Monday with our eyes fixed on eternity. The last thing that he mentions here is, is prayer. Just give you um, so when we come together, prayer should be part of our corporate worship experience praying for one another, praying in a way that we're leading the group. Um, we have elders who lead out in prayer, but did you know that our elders are available, along with our prayer partners, in every worship service for you? At any moment, during any song, you want somebody to pray over you or with you. If you'll go back to our connect corner, we have elders hanging out there. Now, not everybody there is an elder, but if you don't know who our elders are, talk to one person and ask them, hey, can you point me towards an elder? And within one person, you should be with an elder, ready for an elder to pray over you in that situation. Prayer partners as well. Like That's part of our corporate worship experience is praying for and over one another. All right, we're going to shift now. Verse 43, two. Okay, so that's that's what we do. Those are the elements that we participate in. Now we're going to get to what God does. Our expectation of what God does in corporate worship. So verse 43, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now it doesn't say that all came upon every soul because many signs and wonders were being done by the apostles. It's saying that first, that awe came upon everybody, every soul there, and God was working miraculously. Um, uh, Paul Tripp tweeted this morning. If you follow Paul Tripp on Twitter, he, defined, he said this about corporate worship. Corporate worship is designed, so everything we just talked about, commitment to the word, commitment to the ordinances, a commitment to prayer, to the koinonia. Corporate worship is designed to capture our awe and reclaim our wondering hearts with a greater glory than our own get together, corporate worship, it's it's a resetting of value and worth and purpose and reality all week long. These voices have been competing for my attention and my affection all week long. Voices have been trying to talk me into finding my joy in lesser things. When I get together with you, those things are reset. I behold a glory greater than my own, and God recaptures my heart. And he reclaims my attention and so Paul says that verse 41 42 and all came upon him and many miraculous things were being done wonders and signs were being done through the apostles now we tend to go um, automatically to healing people being raised from the dead those are miraculous signs and miraculous wonders but like not as a cop-out but could can I just be honest with you is there anything more amazing than a dead heart coming alive is there anything more amazing than when somebody who doesn't know God hears the gospel and all of a sudden something quickens in their soul, faith is ignited, and they become alive? That's actually where this Acts 2 passage ends, the greatest miracle of all. What Paul says in Acts 2, that we are like dead men walking, but at the right time God made us alive. This is something we should expect to happen when we get together in corporate worship. Um, I, heard, uh, I heard this at a conference I went to. The gospel, when it's preached faithfully, never does nothing. The gospel never does nothing. Romans 10, Paul says, faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? Anything? A good Twila Paris song on KLTY? No. Faith comes from hearing. Sorry, Twila Paris fans. I mean, she's still cool, kind of. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing what? The word of God, the words of Christ. The gospel is what awakens our souls. We should expect that to happen because we're singing it, we're preaching it, we're believing it, we're reminding one another of it. We should expect miraculous things to happen when we gather together in corporate worship. The greatest miracle of all is that when a dead heart comes alive through believing Jesus, the guilt of sin is removed, the weight of shame is removed, the burden of performance based acceptance is removed, the despair of loneliness is removed, and so on and so forth. Hope is a great miracle. When somebody walks in hopeless into a corporate worship experience and they leave with hope, a real hope, right? A good hope, that's miraculous. You can't bottle that up in a pill form and give it to somebody, can you? You can't therapeutically talk somebody into that. They need to encounter the living God for that to happen. And that's miraculous. And we should expect miracles when we get together as his people. All came upon them. Many wonders and signs were being done. Look at verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common verse 45. Here's one of the things that they were doing. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. One of the things that we should expect God to do in us and through us when we get together is a sacrificial love for one another. I don't wake up and roll out of bed ready to sacrificially love you. I usually wake up in the morning and roll out of bed ready to love myself. I need I need some time in God's word, a couple cups of coffee. I need to be reminded, right? I need to be stirred. We get together. That's what happens. I'm prone to forget you throughout the week. I see you on Sunday. It reminds me of you. And that reminding me of you reminds me on Thursday morning to remember you and remember, oh, I'm to love them sacrificially because Christ loves me sacrificially. And so we see it play out here in Acts 2. see it again in Acts 4 tons of Paul's writings that when we are our hearts are stirred with the affections of Christ we love each other sacrificially not just card and flowers high five hope you're doing well comment on your Facebook post because nobody else did I don't want you to feel all weird like true sacrificial love like I'm there when you need me kind of love I'll be in the trenches with you I'll walk through the darkness with you kind of love Verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Can I just point out the obvious? It's obvious, but I think it's incredibly important. Day by day attending the temple together, meaning what? They had to leave their homes, leave what they were doing, and make it a priority to be together. They didn't just haphazardly go through life, and I hope I read into you this week. They made it a priority, a commitment. There was a common commitment to corporate worship. They put it on their calendars. They planned on it. When the time came around, it was a priority to them, whether they felt like it or not. You know know the feeling, too, probably, right? Like, it's time to go to that thing, that Bible study, this Sunday morning, the thing you committed to do, but then when it gets there, you don't feel like it. It's a common commitment, though, that pushes through. It causes us to say, you know what, but I'm going to go anyway. And not just because I'm going to feel guilty, but I'm going to go in faith, believing it's going to be good. And, by, and you do that, right? And then you walk away going, I'm so glad I came. I didn't want to go to men's ministry tonight or women's ministry tonight or this Bible study or to church this morning. Like, I didn't really wake up wanting to go. And then you go and then you leave and you go, I'm so glad I did. You see, when we truly experience corporate worship, there's something that causes us to want to commit to be together. Something that makes me want to see you next Sunday and be here. Glad and generous hearts is another part that's mentioned. Receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Once again, I don't roll out of bed glad and generous. I roll out of bed narcissistic and selfish. But something about Sundays causes me to remember throughout my week to be glad and to be generous. And I'm reminded, oh, I'm a part of a family, a church family. This thing we do on Sunday isn't a come and go thing. It's not just an organization I belong to where I pay my dues. We're a family. Even when I don't see you in the middle of the week, I know you're walking right through life as well. And we're doing this together. And and I'll see you again on Sunday and we'll pray over one another and sing together and worship together. And so our corporate worship produces glad and generous hearts. Verse 42 or 47, Acts 2, 47, praising God. It's important praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. Is there any more miraculous work than that? That somebody goes from not knowing Jesus, walking in hopelessness and despair, to now, in faith, becoming alive, walking with hope, knowing the intimacy of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to I uh, pray for us in just a second as we, as we wrap up. And so as you're taking notes or thinking about what this means for you, hopefully, in some way, the significance of our corporate worship has been elevated in your mind and your heart to where you see that not only does this matter, it's essential. It's essential that you and I come together once a week to remind each other of what is true. To press back against the darkness, even but for a moment. Think about that. You may be walking through your week in frustration and hopelessness and darkness, but you're not, those things aren't allowed in here. You may be walking through your week in loneliness, feeling like nobody cares and nobody sees you, but those feelings aren't allowed in here. And so, for a moment, when you show up here, the church's responsibility is to press back against the darkness to give you some breathing room, to remember what is true, that you are loved and accepted and adopted. You're wanted. Regardless of all the lies that have been poured over your life and your heart and your mind all week long, that you have no value unless you look like this or unless you have this job or this money, this neighborhood, all those lies are the church's job is to push back and say those lies aren't allowed in here to allow you to come in and to breathe and to bask in the presence of the Lord and the presence of the Lord's people to be reset again with your hope put on eternity and reminded of what is true. Let me pray over us and then we'll respond.